exclusive podcast from Impact 89 FM. WDBM East Lansing. 89 FM. The Impact. You're listening to Impact Exposure. Exposure gives a voice to our community and provides a forum for discussing the relevant issues of today. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, this is Impact Exposure. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. In world news today, Libyan leader Muammar Gaddafi has refused to stand down amid widespread anti-government protests, which he says had tarnished the image of the country, according to the BBC. In his first major speech since unrest began last week, Gaddafi said the whole world looked up to Libya and that protests were serving the devil. Reading from the country's Constitution, he says enemies of Libya would be executed. Rights groups say nearly 300 have been killed in violence so far. In national news, four Americans have been taken hostage after their yacht was hijacked by 19 Somali pirates off the Horn of Africa last week, and they, are now, they were now killed by their captors today, American military officials say. According to the New York Times, the four travelers, the youngest of whom was 59, appeared to be the first American hostages to be killed by pirates since a wave of hijackings around the Horn of Africa began two decades ago. The Americans were sailing on their 58-foot yacht for the tiny nation of Djibouti to refuel when they were hijacked several hundred miles off the coast of Oman Friday afternoon. And in Michigan news, protesters came to Lansing today to voice their opinion on the proposed cuts by the Snyder administration and to protest bills in the Michigan's legislature as they see anti-union. According to Michigan Radio, the Detroit News reports that the unofficial estimate put attendance around 1,000 people. Tune in to hear more about Snyder's budget proposal later in the hour. Also in the hour, we will be talking about East Lansing's own School of Rock. And if you want to keep up to date with what goes on here on Exposure every week, you can follow Exposure on Twitter as well as Facebook. But in the studio... Again, we have Salah Hassan. He was in the studio two weeks ago to talk about the protests in Egypt. And now he's on again to talk about the impact of the recent protests that have rippled across the Middle East as well as Northern Africa. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Emily. So now recapping, what made the protests so successful in Egypt, do you think? Well, we've yet to see if they've been completely successful in the aspirations of the pro-democracy movement. The military is in charge, and the general feeling is that uh, there are still there's still a lot of room for for change in Egypt. Uh, uh, Mubarak is gone. Omar Suleiman has faded into the background, and uh, the military council has taken charge of the country. And this is what a lot of people had expected would happen. Um, leading into Mubarak stepping down in the week before he stepped down. And so right now I would say that its success is only a partial success from the perspective of the demands, the overall demands of the Egyptian pro-democracy movement. Uh, we'll have to see in the, in the longer term, let's say in six months or a year, whether or not this uh, protest movement actually yields the kind of results, the kinds of transformation that will really make Egypt into a model for democracy in the Arab world. And what do you foresee happening? It's really hard to predict what 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 will what will come what will happen in the next uh, six to eight months or a year, but the ideal scenario would be a uh, that the military would uh, prepare the ground for elections that political parties, all political parties, including the Muslim Brotherhood and other parties that previously have been marginalized from the political process, will be allowed to form and recruit and campaign and uh, 
run for office and that there will be a genuine, robust democratic process. That's something that what, that's one scenario that one can imagine happening. Uh, more likely, honestly, in the it, it's going to take quite a bit of time uh, to shake things out. And uh, uh, in all likelihood, the military is going to remain in power. That's that's what I what, what my prediction would be, at least for some time. We may see a little bit more, you know, uh, protest developing uh, as things drag out and eventually uh, the military having to cede some additional power to civilians. But I don't see that happening really quickly. And, uh, and it's very unfortunate because of the, um, the hopefulness of this particular movement, which is a sign that things are changing. And if we don't see radical change, then, of course, there will be more earthquakes of the sort we saw, popular uprisings of that sort. Now, in the studio, I'm talking to Salah Hassan. He's with the English and as well as Muslim Studies program here at MSU. Now, Salah, I'm, I'm curious, talk about the ripple effect of the protests that have happened across the Middle East over the past two months. We, we saw it in Tunisia. We saw it in Egypt. Now we're seeing it, as we've seen in the news today, Libya, as well as some other countries as well. Talk about how that, that came to be. Well, it, for a long time, I would say, certainly for the last 10, maybe 15, probably 20 years, there's been a a lot of uh, discontent among Arab populations in every country. I've traveled since since the late 80s. I've traveled to the Middle East uh, quite regularly, and whether I'm, I was in Morocco, uh, Egypt, uh, the Palestinian-occupied territories, Lebanon, my experience has been that uh, there's a great degree of discontent, and most people n do not feel confident in their governments. And now what we're seeing is that the generation, the current generation, if we go back to the 90s, a lot of these people uh, were born in the um, late 80s, early 90s, and uh, the youth of the Arab world have known little other than this kind of um, oppressive authoritarian regime. And I think I pointed this out a couple of weeks ago, is that all of these regimes, with the exception of Syria, have been supported by the United States. Now, Libya is a, is a unique case, because in the period from the 80s and 90s, uh, Libya became a pariah state and was considered a state sponsor of terrorism, and uh, there were sanctions against it, and the U.S. put quite a significant degree of pressure on Libya uh, at that time in an effort actually to overthrow Muammar Gaddafi. And uh, that failed, and Gaddafi was able to redeem himself and was then re-embraced by the United States and by the European Union, and has since um, been able to negotiate lucrative contracts uh, oil contracts and development projects in Libya for, uh, uh, you know, really, really uh, for his own ends and redeeming his population or his reputation internationally. That said, clearly the population of Libya feels uh, disenfranchised. And seeing the example of Egypt on one hand and Tunisia, which is on the other border, uh, on the northwest border, um, these two countries being able to overthrow dictatorships of 30 or so years, Gaddafi is the longest ruling ruler in the Arab world. He's been there for 40 years since 1969. Um, I'm certain that uh, 
the effect has been a model, the model of Egypt, the model of Tunisia is a model that these young people, uh, and in general the Libyan population, uh, would like to emulate. And unfortunately, Gaddafi has been incredibly um, calculating in the design of his security apparatus, such that uh, there is no military central command that could say, okay, now he's gone far enough. We're going to get him out of power. This is essentially what happened in the case of Egypt. In the case of Tunisia, it was the uh, security apparatus that removed uh, the president and forced him onto the plane and forced him into exile. And um, in, in the case of Gaddafi, it's his sons, his extended family, and a set of uh, other relations that he's able to rely on in order to... Um, to maintain control, and it's fragmented, and he has great degree of influence over every aspect of the the military and the security apparatus. Libya is a really a very small; it's it's a huge territory, but a very small population, and so uh, it's 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 not Tunisia and it's not Egypt. The other thing, it has great oil wealth. It's probably the ninth or tenth. Uh, producer of oil in the world, and um, Europeans rely heavily, especially Italians, on the oil production of Libya, and we've seen a lot of attention being paid to that in the media recently. Now, Salah Hassan, you were talking about how young these populations are. You know, they're born in the late 70s, early 80s or so, and that this, for many of them, this is the only government they've ever known. Um, so when thinking about these protests, I, I think about how younger people, I feel, are more apt to go out and, and, and be out there and, and be a part of the protest. Do you think that that would have happened? Um, I understand that virtually... Um, every Arab country, um, more than half the population is less than 30 years old. Um, and, and as you were talking before, and I was looking at a map that came out in the recent uh, Time magazine article for this week, and it, it showed a map of uh, northern um, Africa as well as the Middle East, and it showed the percent of the population that was under 30, and it was very high for all of the countries. Um, so I'm curious, do you think that that plays a huge role, the age, as to how powerful these protests are? I think it is a factor. I wouldn't want to overstate it. I think that it's a factor in the sense that a lot of these young people have also um, grown up, on one hand, under these dictatorships, but on the other hand, in an era of uh, globalization that's characterized by international exchanges of various sorts and technology that has made it possible for them to connect with uh, other young people around the world and access forms of culture that and politics that otherwise would have been difficult, say, pre-1990s. So this, this, certainly this generation has access to information and uh, experiences either virtually or directly through exchanges and contact that is a little bit different than um, what, what we would say of somebody over 30, for example. I think that one wouldn't want to... Um, idealize or romanticize a, a youth culture in the Arab world. I mean, it's certainly there, um, but there's other factors, I think, that are equally important. What we're seeing is still the continuation of a process, a historical process in the Arab world that is uh, what we might call the post-colonial Arab Arab context. And uh, every single one of these Arab countries, Egypt, Libya, Tunisia, were ruled by European powers until 
the 1940s or 1950s and indeed 1960s in the case of Algeria. Algeria was a colony of France until 1962. And that said, you know, they, they haven't had really a long history of state, independent state formation. And so these regimes that are in power right now, for the most part, are the regimes that came to power after independence. And uh, either they came to power by overthrowing monarchies or by that were supported by, in the case of um, Libya, the monarchy was supported by the Italians. Italy was the colonial power in Libya. In the case of Egypt, it was the British. In the case of Tunisia, it was the French. And these are the same regimes that have been in power for so many years now that um, different leaders in some cases, but the same political regimes. And... Um, so what we're seeing is the playing out over really a 50-year process of a struggle for Arabs, Arab publics to be independent and uh, to uh, achieve what you know they rightfully deserve, which is not just democracy, but the intellectual and cultural life that is so much a part of, of, uh, of the Arab world. I mean, a, a certain kind of richness there that hasn't really been able to flourish in the face of... Uh, repression of free speech, journalism, etc. So you think, you said um, that most of these countries, they want to be independent, they want democracy, intellectual and cultural life. Is that what's fueling the majority of these protests within that region? Well, I think, yeah, I think that that's certainly uh, a major factor. But then you have the, the nuts and bolts issues of housing, work, you know, unemployment, uh, access to uh resources in the and corruption and so the the separation between the rich and poor which is one of the phenomenons of of globalization that we see even in this country where 90% of the national wealth is controlled by a very small percentage of the population 2 or 3 or 4% of the population in those countries you have those same kinds of problems and for the most part there's not really a middle class to speak of Libya is a little or um I'm sorry, uh, Tunisia was a little bit of an exception. Libya also is a little bit of an exception. What's, what Gaddafi was able to do for many, many years was to use oil wealth to provide basic social services for uh, Libyans so that they would be content and, you know, they would have housing and they would have, you know, cars and there was some health care and education and these kinds of things. But after a certain point, that does not satisfy the need of the people who really want to be able to engage in free expression and not have to worry about surveillance and the security state apparatus that controls their daily lives. I'm curious, has anything like this happened before where you have so many protests going on at very close period of time in a very close, in, in, within the same general region? Yeah. Well, the, the classic example would be 1968 when... Uh, Really, it was a international in France, in Mexico, in Egypt. You, there were popular protests, mostly student-led, but it was like the conjunction of students and workers. And so the classic example often is pointed to is Paris in 1968. And, uh, but the, that, that particular protest in Paris in 1968 was also uh, 
repeated in Mexico City. It was also repeated in Beirut and other places throughout the world. And so there, there are many uh, in 1968. But even um, we can look back to uh, the period really between 1959 and 1962, when many of the African countries were, you know, there was the Cuban Revolution in 1959. There was the Algerian Revolution in, the period, in that period, Algerian independence in 1962. Uh, and these were these were massive popular movements, and a lot of hope was pinned on them. And in many ways, people thought of this as the emergence of the third world. And so this this idea of a kind of third world revolutionary culture, um, that also, in some ways, failed to produce the kind of results that people had hoped for. And what we saw in many cases were enduring military regimes of the sort that still exists in Cuba, for example. Um, whatever hope one had in, 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 in the Cuban Revolution for some kind of um, social equality still remains in question uh, in Algeria, the Algerian Revolution, the Palestinian Revolution. All of these sort of look like examples of somewhat failed attempts to achieve um, social equality through revolutionary politics. So as we were talking before, how how much of the in these regions, so many of the countries, um, half the population is uh, less than 30 years old, so you have a young population. I'm curious, do you think that um, for those governments that have been overthrown, that you are now going to see a younger voice at the table um, when it comes to their new government? Yeah. I, I it's a, I think that we've seen some of that actually happen. It's it's strange. I mean, some of it has happened in places like Jordan and, and even uh, Syria, where the sons of the former dictators came to power as young men. You know, so the king, King Abdullah of uh, Jordan is 49, and he's been in power now for some 20 years. So he was, you know, he was in his late 20s when he came to power, and Bashar al-Assad is approximately the same situation in Syria. But the youth of the, those particular leaders did not produce change in those particular countries. And so, again, this is why I would go back to, it's a little bit, I wouldn't, I'm not convinced that youthfulness is necessarily going to produce the results. What it really takes is a certain kind of character and a willingness to accept the, that, that uh, to the possibility of surrendering power. So the, the model for me is actually an older man, and that's Nelson Mandela, who was released from prison in Robben Island, is, becomes the first president of post-apartheid South Africa, serves one term, and steps down. Now, that's the model that one wants to look for. And he was a revolutionary as a young man, spent a good amount of his time in prison. Once he had the opportunity to take power, did he cling to it? No. He set the example of not just the idea of term limits, he willingly surrendered power after his term, when he, of course, was the most popular South African, not just in South Africa, but throughout Africa. And uh, so he could have easily remained in power. So that kind of character we've yet to see emerge. And, um, and I think that there are people like that, young and old in the Arab world, who could play those roles. People like Mohammed al-Baradei, uh, I think I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, who was in some ways pushed forward as a possible leader of the, of the Egyptian protest movement. Uh, there are people uh, like... Um, uh, Mustafa Barghouti, a Palestinian who's, uh, you know, he's still quite young, I would say, maybe in his 50s, uh, but, you know, older than this generation that we're talking about, um, who represent, in my view, reasoned, 
men with a certain kind of character. There are women as well. Um, uh, Hanan Ashrawi, a Palestinian woman who has also played a role in politics in the past, but has been in some ways marginalized by the Palestinian Authority. Noel al-Sadawi, the Egyptian writer who is in her 80s and has been very outspoken in supporting um, the pro-democracy movement. Fatima Marnisi in Morocco, who's been very critical. Uh, Asiya Jabbar, who's been critical of the Algerian government. So you, you do have women and men of a certain age, say over 50, maybe in their 60s, even in their 70s, who could serve in that transitional role, who are respected by young and old, who have international reputations. Uh, but is it going to be possible for them to emerge in the face of military regimes that see their role as maintaining stability? And in the service of what? In, in the service of cheap oil? In the end of the day, we look at the Libyan situation um, quite often. Like, uh, interestingly, in the, in the case of Egypt, the concern was the Muslim Brotherhood. Are the Muslim Brotherhood going to come to power? This was the North American, U.S. preoccupation. And can we support the protesters? What if the Muslim Brotherhood? So a kind of concern about U.S. interests there. Now it's Libyan oil. What's going to happen to the, the, the cost of oil? We've already seen it go up 20 cents in the last couple of days with the instability in Libya. Is it going to go up to $5 by the summer? Um, what's going to happen to Libyan oil production, a million barrels a day, uh, if the regime falls? And so this preoccupation with um, U.S. interests as opposed to you know, supporting the possibility of something new coming out is really a concern here. So young people, yes, important. They, it's for them. And they need to take charge and they need to be involved. But at the same time, I wouldn't want to romanticize too much the idea of a youthful leadership. It would be great if someone were to emerge. But right now, we don't really see any leader figures coming out of these youth movements who have the um, character, who have established characters that can then take charge. Well, in the studio, I have Salah Hassan. He is with uh, the Department of English as well as with the Muslim Studies Program here at MSU. And he was here to talk about the impact of the recent protests that have rippled across the Middle East as well as Northern Africa. Thank you so much for coming on the show tonight. Thanks. You're listening to Impact Exposure. I'm out of here. Th thanks again, man. It was good. Wait, time. you were uh, you were hitting it pretty hard tonight. Are you, are you good to drive? Heck yeah! I am amazing at driving. Yeah, man, you sure? I mean, I can call a cab, or we fine. can uh, we can get somebody to take you home. Yeah, you know? yeah, don't worry. I'm good. Okay. Uh, hey, text me when you get back. Okay. Stop right there. This is stupid. He's drunk. Friends don't let friends drink and drive ever. A message from 88.9 The Impact. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Prime Time. where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Friday nights from 8 until 10 p.m., the Impact Flashback is your retro music alternative, playing your old favorites from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Only on Impact Primetime. In a world where radio was repetitive and mundane, in a time when FM is plagued by the same 15 songs, an army of new songs are called to battle. And only the strongest survive. Every Sunday night from 8 till 10. Sit or spit. Only on Impact 89 FM. 
Now back to Impact Exposure. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. And up next is a special feature by Impact's own Annie Scaramuzino. And she is here to present a story about East Lansing's own School of Rock. You are destroying your life with that, that, that garbage. All right, Mr. Sister. I want you to tell me. No, better yet, stand up and tell the class. What do you want to do with your life? I want to rock. From an early age, we all had a dream of what we wanted to be when we grew up. Some of us wanted to be firefighters. Others wanted to be astronauts, teachers, or doctors. To reach these goals, we were told that we had to go to school. There, we studied the basics. English, math, science, social studies, and so on. But what if you'd attended a different kind of school? The kind where desks were prohibited, the teachers wore leather, and your final exam was to rock out on stage in front of hundreds of people. What if what you wanted to be when you grew up was the next Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, or Paul McCartney? What if mom and dad had sent you to a school of rock? And we shall teach rock and roll to the world. There's no way you can stop the school of rock. This is exactly what local musicians, The Outer Vibe, set out to establish back in the summer of 2009. Inspired by the Jack Black movie School of Rock, the members of The Outer Vibe wanted to start a camp to teach aspiring musicians and to pass down all of their knowledge and experiences in rock and roll. One, two, three, four. The Outer Vibe started back in 2005 in Grand Rapids, Michigan. They're a five-piece group with a ton of talent and energy to match. In the time that the band has been together, they have definitely had success. They have released three original CDs, performed 60 to 80 shows a year, sometimes to crowds reaching 4,000 people, and have received airplay from some of the major radio stations around Michigan. The initial idea for the School of Rock Band Camp came when the MSU Community Music School teamed up with the band's horn and keyboard player, MSU alum, Lisa Kakos. We were involved with music a lot, and we've played on campus a couple times, and the MSU Community Music School had some ideas for a rock camp. We got hired as teachers to teenagers, guys and girls who can play rock instruments, and it's been great. It's not even work. We have a blast doing it. The camp focuses on students ranging in age from 12 to 18 and uses workshops to teach campers every aspect of being in a rock band. From forming a group to performing on stage to marketing, promoting, and producing, The Outer Vibe covers it all for these future rock stars. I must say I, I find your methods of teaching very unusual. We're a hardworking band and we as individuals have done a lot of studying at music. I mean it's something we're actually we're professionals at it. We have graduate degrees in music. We're a good group of people. We're safe to leave your kids with and they'll get a lot out of it. They can learn a lot, not just music. New schedule. 8.15 to 10, rock history. 10 to 11, rock appreciation and theory. And then band practice till the end of the day. What about math? No, not important. And the cool thing about our band is that we all do have experience teaching our instruments. We've also all been performing for quite a while, so we've learned a lot along the way about being a rock band, you know, some of the ins and outs, the ups and downs, the do's and don'ts. Trip and fall on your face a few times and you eventually learn. One of the students, aspiring guitar player Jacob Wolf, talked about how he initially got involved in rock band camp. 
I was just starting uh, taking guitar from my uncle, and uh, we just saw an ad. And I was originally going to do it for drums, but uh, I decided not to do the first one, the very first one that they ever started. But then the second one, once I've started guitar for maybe four months, I started doing it. Then after that, I did a workshop about playing in a band and then did Common Grounds. The summer offered an amazing opportunity to Jacob and his fellow rock campers. A final jam on stage at the Lansing Music Festival, Common Ground. Common Ground takes place right in the heart of downtown Lansing every July. It is a week-long music event that brings in concert goers from all over Michigan. This year's festival put kids on the same lineup as big shots such as Alice Cooper, Brett Michaels, Ludacris, and many others. People are really surprised. We've done these camps before, and parents and people in the audience, just our fans, are like, I didn't think it was going to be like that. They see a bunch of 12 and 13 year olds get up and they see that they're going to play some famous song by a major artist and they're like, whoa, they really can do this. They just want to do it. You know, we tell them, you know, you work hard and you get to go play a show and they work hard. We get them the basics, then they figure things out from there. We teach them the, you know, the best thing is to prepare so that way autopilot kicks in and so usually they perform pretty well, even the ones that are really nervous, surprising well. And then they walk off stage and about pass out. All right, let's pray. God of rock, thank you for this chance to kick ass. We are your humble servants. Please give us the power to blow people's minds with our high voltage rock. In your name we pray. Amen. 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 Now let's get out there and melt some faces! Due to the success of the summer program, The Outer Vibe has also begun teaching workshops during the year. We look at the 11 years we've been a band and figure out, um, well, not only what's important for them to know, but what's going to interest them the most, too. And surprisingly, the marketing class is one thing that, you know, you may think, what in the world does that include <laughs> for kids? But they all like it, like learning how to figure out what your brand is and how you figure out what audience likes your brand of music and how the look of your band could go along with that and maybe the posters that promote your group and your CDs and everything that involves it. So, um, yeah, we look at everything we've done and say, you know, what, what we think they need to know. And a lot of it, you know, we try to keep the focus on playing as well, but we also emphasize that playing is only part of being in a band. Recently, the band taught a songwriting workshop in East Lansing at the Michigan State Community Music School. There, the kids were put into bands and challenged to write a song from start to finish and to perform it before the end of the day. We took pretty much a lot of their own opinions. A lot of them have written songs in the past, so we said, okay, come up with an idea. Anybody have a riff or a chord progression or anything? And usually somebody will speak up and say, well, I like this. I've been playing around with this, and they'll throw in a suggestion. And sometimes they start with the music like that, and then sometimes they start with the lyrics and we kind of coach them through how do you pick a song topic and then how do you even write lyrics. It's, it's something that if you haven't done it, it sounds kind of intimidating maybe, but it really doesn't have to be all that complicated or scary. First, the lead person, Oliver, out there with the kind of striped guitar, he's usually the one who makes up like the riff if we're going to do kind of more Led Zeppelin type music or are we going to do Metallica. This time we did Metallica, more music. So we start off with that riff, knowing how to kind of music is going to be more heavy, and then we just picked up from there and made uh, the verse and the chorus and the bridge and all the stuff that you need for the song. It just happens, really, once you get the ball rolling, especially when you get a group of kids where everybody contributes. You get lots of different influences and ideas and skill in areas, and uh, usually the final product is pretty cool. So what's in store for the School of Rock Band Camp? 
the Outer Vibe have no plans of slowing down anytime soon, with the camps expanding across the state and workshops planned well into 2011. One thing that's happening is that the Rock Camp is expanding into other cities. So it started in East Lansing. It also runs in Grand Rapids. We're pushing for Holland, Michigan, Northern Michigan, maybe Traverse City area. The workshop thing is pretty cool just because everybody's so busy this time of the year that we couldn't actually have the time to run the full camp. But, you know, it's hard to say. You know, when the community wants it, you just give it to them, really. When uh, they end with a gig and the parents are so proud, like, to see their kids get up there and play in a band with kids they have only known for a max of 15 hours, really. And they work so hard in the short time they have together. And it's rewarding just to see their accomplishment, their hard work paying off throughout the week, and then the uh, appreciation and you know from the parents and they really, I guess, appreciate what we do for the kids and we're, we're happy to do it. So, if you're interested in becoming a rock star in training or want to find out more information about the School of Rock Bandcamp, you could go to theoutervibe.com forward slash rock camp or you can go to cms.msu.edu. This feature was written and produced by Annie Scarmazzino, with special thanks to the members of The Outer Vibe and the Michigan State Community Music School. You're listening to Impact Exposure on You're tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. And again, that was a special feature by Annie Scaramuzino. And now on the phone is MSU economics professor Charles Ballard. And he is on the phone to talk about Governor Snyder's budget proposal he announced last Thursday. Welcome to the show, Professor Ballard. Thanks very much. I'm glad to be here. So to get everyone up to speed, what were some of the highlights of Snyder's budget proposal last Thursday? Uh, there were several things on the tax side and several things on the spending side. Uh, something that he, he campaigned very uh, um, vocally on was eliminating the Michigan business tax and then instituting a corporation income tax uh, that would not make up as much revenue so that that would be a net revenue loss on top of the fact that we go into this next fiscal year with a 1.8 billion dollar deficit so so you, you start with a 1.8 billion dollar deficit then you shrink revenue through the, the business tax thing uh, you got to make up the revenue somehow. Uh, you got to make it balance, and he made it balance with a combination of some uh, tax increases. Uh, the the biggest of these was um, leveling the playing field between earned income and retirement income. Uh, Michigan has been very very generous toward retirement income. Essentially, all, very few Michigan seniors pay any tax in income tax. Uh, and then on the spending side, some some very major reductions in uh, higher ed as well as K through 12 spending, elimination of the earned income tax credit also, and uh, some uh, scaling back of uh, a variety of other spending programs, including aid to local governments. So it's a, you know, when you start with a with a 1.8 billion dollar deficit, the the uh, the uh, there's no combination of policy proposals that's going to make everybody happy. And, and not surprisingly, there's been a lot of um, discussion in, in Lansing and around the state about the pros and cons of the various features. 
Now, how much now knowing that we have a one point eight billion dollar deficit, how much do you think that he ended up cutting and then you know adding to our to our budget? Well, um, I'll, I'll give. Uh, uh, there are some parts of it that I believe were uh, very, very courageous and very good moves. Um, the, uh, the the Michigan Business Task has some some very serious flaws, and I'm happy to get get rid of it uh, and because that moves us closer to having a level playing field between different types of businesses not all the way but closer also he would get rid of a whole or eventually get rid of a whole bunch of uh, special tax breaks for special industries and and for the same reason i i like that one and i also am very much in favor of um putting uh, retirement income on the same basis as earned income um on the other hand the net effect is of the budget proposals is that it involves some very, very substantial reductions in uh, spending. And this is after a decade in which the uh, expenditure on a whole bunch of things has already been really cut very deeply. And, you know, close to home here at Michigan State, uh, all 15 of the state-supported universities have had very, very large decreases in their uh, allocation from the state. And then on top of that, we're putting another 15% cut. Uh, that will mean that the universities will struggle more to find ways to be affordable to students um, and still maintain quality programs. Um, the, the net uh, effect of, of all the cuts over the last nine years, if, if Governor Snyder's proposal goes into effect, will what, what it will be is we will have cut all 15 universities by about the same proportion, but it will be equivalent to keeping U of M, MSU, and Wayne State open and closing the other 12. Oh, wow. Just to give you some idea of the magnitude. So what do you think about about his proposal to do a 15% cut in public universities? And then he says that he has an incentive to keep universities from raising tuition over 7%. Uh, the, you know, I, I, I think I'll be clear, uh, although people may say that I'm self-interested in it, and I suppose I am, uh, but I, I think that higher education, as well as K-12, through as well as pre-kindergarten, is just so crucially important for our state's uh, economic future, and so I'm, uh, I would have found the money to uh, not make such deep cuts in our education spending. Um, it feels sort of like eating our seed corn. Um, uh, but I am glad that um, the governor allowed the, uh, basically uh, his proposal will allow the universities to raise tuition as much as 7%. Now, uh, because the alternative, there was some talk, some rumors that perhaps there would be a, a more stringent cap on tuition. Well, that would make it all the more difficult for us to find the ways to continue to deliver quality programs. Of course, uh, I'm not saying that the 7% tuition increase would be fun, but I'm uh, on net, that's better than having a, a lower uh, cap because that would just mean less revenue available. With some sort of tuition increase, what's going to happen is probably MSU will raise tuition, but we have been very aggressive at MSU in trying to have enough financial aid such that we are not pricing ourselves out 
uh, out of availability for, for the uh, young people from lower and middle income families. So do you foresee MSU going over that 7% increase at all in the next year? Well, of course, you know, I'm, I'm not uh, one of the ones who makes those decisions. Those right. decisions are made by people like President Simon and Provost Wilcox and the Board of Trustees. But uh, my guess is that we will uh, have a, a tuition increase of some sort. Um, uh, whether it goes all the way to the seven, I don't know. But um, given that we're going to be taking a 15% cut in our allocation from the state, uh, just to try to maintain quality programs, we've got to come up with the money somewhere. And so I do expect that there will be a tu- tuition increase. Now, Charles Ballard, you were talking about some good moves that you thought that uh, Governor Steiner made. I'm curious, what would you like to have seen um, with his budget proposal that happened last Thursday? Well, you know, I've mentioned several things and I, I give that I like, and I really give the governor very high marks. I think it takes tremendous courage to propose, as he has, to put retirement income on the same basis as earned income, as w- income from working. You know, I know that a lot of folks are complaining about that, but honestly, when I retire, I don't see how it's fair that I will suddenly stop paying income tax in the state of Michigan. After all, I will not stop wanting the roads to be paved. I will not stop wanting there to be state parks, et cetera. So um, I'm, I'm glad for that. But if, if I had been in the governor's shoes, or, or my, my most preferred proposal would have not made such deep cuts in spending programs. And to do that, you've got to come up with the revenue somehow. And the uh, the, the, the biggest uh, places to do that would be in the sales tax and the income tax. We in Michigan, like many other states, we have a sales tax that only applies really to stuff that you buy in a hardware store and a, and a clothing store and, and some other things, but it doesn't apply to most services and entertainments. And over the years, services and entertainments have grown very rapidly such that the sales tax taxes an ever smaller share of our economy. If it had been up to me, I, and I've been proposing this for years, um, we would bring in those services and entertainments. Um, if you were to tax everything at the same 6% rate that we currently have on the things that are taxed, if you were to tax all retail purchases, you'd get more than $3 billion additional, uh, which would be more than enough to um, maintain the, the public services without um, – without these kind of cuts. Um, Another possibility is the income tax. We have a flat rate income tax of 4.35%. If you were to raise that to the 5% level, which is what they have in Utah, uh, that would raise about a billion a year. So there are places to raise the revenue. You know, um, one thing that uh, not everybody understands, but it it is absolutely true, the biggest source of these budget crises in Michigan over the last several years has been shrinking revenues. It's not been out-of-control expenditures. What we've had is we've, for a variety of reasons, our tax base has shrunk and shrunk and shrunk. If you compare to where we were 10 years ago, um, the state's revenue collection are down, as as a proportion of the economy, they're down by about $9 billion a year. Very dramatic decrease in revenues. And so if it had been up to me, I would have pushed for uh, additional revenues. Of course, uh, let's face it, the political difficulties are huge. 
uh, it'll be a challenge enough for Governor Snyder to get his program uh, enacted. Um, and, and so I, you know, I, as I said at the beginning, I understand that there aren't any fun and quick and easy, painless solutions that that everybody's going to agree to. And uh, um, I applaud him for the the courageous proposals he's put forth on the revenue side. And I wish he'd gone further. Well, on the phone is Charles Ballard. He's a professor of economics here at MSU. And he's on the phone to talk about Governor Snyder's budget proposal he announced last Thursday. Thank you so much for joining us today, Charles Ballard. It has been my pleasure. Thanks for having me on the program. All right. Thank you. Now, up next, we have um, an, in the Impact features an artist every single week. Um, here at the Impact, we like to call it the Impact Artist Spotlight. And this week's Artist Spotlight features Radiohead. And now, an Impact Artist Spotlight. Like most bands around in the mid-90s, Radiohead rose to fame with their post-grunge sound, specifically their hit Creep. Although their debut album was often described as Nirvana Light, the success of Creep and subsequent singles put Pablo Honey and the band in the national spotlight. But I'm a After the sudden success of Pablo Honey, the band retreated to Australia and Mexico to wind down and create the band's second album, The Benz. On The Benz, Radiohead toned down their grungier sounds and incorporated more atmospheric sounds, utilizing all three guitar players. Though the album spawned several singles, including Fake Plastic Trees, The Benz did not have the same commercial success that Pablo Honey had. She lives with With their third album, Radiohead moved their sound into bolder territories by incorporating more avant-garde and electronic influences. The album that took the world by storm was OK Computer. The album addressed themes like modern alienation and spawned the singles No Surprises, Karma Police, and Paranoid Android. first half of the new millennium, Radiohead released three albums that reflected this new futuristic state of being. Kid A and Amnesiac were a departure from the band's more guitar-centric sound, incorporating a variety of influences from electronic music to jazz horns. In 2002, the band released Hail to the Chief, an album that singer Tom York claimed was not a response to the 2000 U.S. presidential election. Hail to the Chief returned to their mixture of electronics and guitar-based song structures. Although many claim that Radiohead was treading water creatively, the album eventually went platinum. This was a creative peak for Radiohead, and this time the band was met with critical acclaim and an ever-expanding audience.
2007, Radiohead posted their hotly anticipated album In Rainbows on their website for download. It was with this album that they coined the term the Radiohead model of music distribution. Listeners could choose what price to pay. It was reported that the album was downloaded 1.2 million times the day of the release. Other artists, including Nine Inch Nails and the Smashing Pumpkins, would later follow the same model for future releases. King of Limbs, Radiohead is once again set to turn the music world upside down. Limbs was digitally released February 18th, and the physical release will be available later this year. The physical release of King of Limbs is said to be the first newspaper album, including a physical CD and extras such as two clear 10-inch vinyl records in a purpose-built record sleeve. Many large sheets of artwork, 625 tiny pieces of artwork, and a full-color piece of OXO degradable plastic to hold it all together. This has been an Impact Artist Spotlight on 89FM. You're listening to Impact Exposure. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox, and in the studio is Sherry Murgatroyd of MSU's Sexual Assault Program, and she's in to talk about her organization's upcoming benefit concert, which will take place this Thursday at 8 p.m. in the RCH Theater, uh, and it is featuring the group Nervous But Excited. Welcome to the show, Sherry Murgatroyd. Thanks, Emily. So to start off, um, the MSU Sexual Assault Program is celebrating a birthday coming up soon, the 30th year. Yes, it's our 30th year anniversary. We've been providing services for a very long time. In fact, we are one of the oldest university-based sexual assault programs in the nation. It's pretty exciting. That is that is pretty exciting. And what services do you provide? We have a 24-hour sexual assault crisis line. We also provide in-person crisis intervention and advocacy services at Sparrow Hospital, at the Sexual Assault Nurse Examiner Unit there, or at local police departments, um, or through the criminal justice system at any, at any point when a victim might need help through navigating the legal system or the medical system, we have advocates who are on call 24-7 to respond to those needs. We also provide individual therapy for MSU students and support groups. And how many individuals do you serve per year? Do you have an estimate at all? Yes. Anywhere. Uh, last year we served close to 400. I think we'll be surpassing it this year. Um, we've been really busy. Wow. And and I'm curious, over the years, has there been, um, you know, certain times where you've seen a lot of people come in and, and some years not? Well, I've been at the program for six years, so we've been um, tracking data and collecting data and try to get more efficient with that every year um, so we capture everything. I think sometimes when you work in crisis intervention services, the paperwork sometimes gets neglected as far as counting all of the phone calls and all of the email requests. Um, we have a contact form now available on our website, and we've been getting more um, ser- more requests for services through our website, and we also have Facebook and Twitter. So I think that we've just been seeing a trend in the last few years because of social networking. Uh, 
with more students getting connected to our services. And so we've seen an increase in services over the last six years since I've been there. And how prevalent would you say is sexual assault? Well, national statistics from the Department of Justice usually cite um, anywhere from one in three to one in four women will be victims of sexual assault in their lifetime, and one in six to one in ten men will be victims of sexual assault. So it depends on the research that you read, but those are um, estimate numbers that we, we see frequently in this work. So talk about your benefit concert that's going to happen this Thursday on campus. Well, we have Nervous But Excited coming to um, play for us um, around 8 o'clock. We have an opening act. We did a talent search a few weeks ago for an MSU um, student to be the opening act, and we have uh, Brittany Cigna, an MSU student, who will be opening up at 8 o'clock. And we also have a slideshow and a dedication to a former employee of the Counseling Center and Sexual Assault Program, uh, Miss Ann Flesher. She passed away about three years ago, and she was a beloved um, worker in this area, a social justice advocate, um, big in violence against women initiatives, and we'll be dedicating the night to her. Now talk about the band Nervous of Excited. Why is it that you chose them to perform at this event? Well, actually, a couple years ago at uh, the Women in the Arts Festival, I won them in a silent auction. Hmm. Uh, so I outbid everyone else there. <laughs> and so I won them, and they said that they would perform uh, a concert anywhere that I, that I requested. So I wanted them to come to the program. Um, I also am friends with them. I've known them for several years, and Sarah and, and Kate are friends with uh, we're friends with Ann Flesher as well. So they they connect on many levels. They connect you know, with dedicating the night to Ann Flesher and then also connect um, in the community and, and violence against women issues. Um, they're, they perform in Lansing quite a bit. And where can people go for more information about uh, the concert that will be happening to benefit the MSU sexual assault uh, program here on campus? There is information on our website, which is endrape.msu.edu or Nervous But Excited website, which is nervousbutexcited.com. And I just want to ask you one last question because our Michigan storytelling segment, again, is going to highlight the vagina, vagina monologues, and I know that you were a part of that process. How did it go last weekend? Oh, it was just wonderful. I've had the pleasure of being the advisor for the cast and co-directors for the last three years um, when they became a registered student organization on campus. And, you know, all three performances were outstanding. I you know, was in the audience for all three, and the laughter and, and the tears were flowing, and I think they really impacted all of the audience and uh, community members that came to support them. Well, excellent. And in the studio is Sherry Murgatroyd. She is with the MSU Sexual Assault Program, and she was here to talk about her organization's upcoming benefit concert, which will take place this Thursday at 8 p.m. in the RCH Theater, and it'll feature the band Nervous But Excited. And here's a song by Nervous Excited. This is called Smaller, Taller. Ready. Steady. Go. Go.
Now back to Impact Exposure. This week's Michigan Storytelling segment features Emily Knott. She was a part of the production of the Vagina Monologues that took place last weekend. This is how I came to love my vagina. It's embarrassing because it's not politically correct. I mean, I know it should have happened in a bath with salt grains from the Dead Sea, Enya playing, me loving my woman self. I know the story. Vaginas are beautiful. Our self-hatred is only the internalized repression and hatred of the patriarchal culture. It isn't real. I know all of it. Like, if we'd grown up in a culture where we were taught fat thighs were beautiful, we'd all be pounding down milkshakes and Krispy Kremes, lying on our backs, spending our days thigh-expanding. But we didn't grow up in that culture. I hated my thighs, and I hated my vagina even more. I thought it was incredibly ugly. I was one of those women who had looked at it, and from that moment on, I wished I hadn't. It made me sick. I pitied anyone who had to go down there. In order to survive, I began to pretend there was something else between my legs. I imagined furniture, cozy futons with light cotton comforters, little velvet settees, leopard rugs, or pretty things, silk handkerchiefs, quilted potholders, place settings. I got so accustomed to this that I lost all memory of having a vagina. Whenever I had sex with a man, I pictured him inside a mink-lined muffler or a Chinese bowl. Then I met Bob. Bob was the most ordinary man I ever met. He was thin and tall and nondescript and wore khaki-tan clothes. Bob did not like spicy foods or listen to prints. He had no interest in sexy lingerie. In the summer, he spent time in the shade. He did not share his innermost feelings. He did not have any problems or issues and was not even an alcoholic. He wasn't very funny or articulate or mysterious. He wasn't mean or unavailable. He wasn't self-involved or charismatic. He didn't drive fast. I didn't particularly like Bob. I would have missed him altogether if he hadn't picked up my change I dropped on the deli floor. But when he handed me back my quarters and pennies and his hand accidentally touched mine, something happened. I went to bed with him. That's when the miracle occurred. And for the Michigan Storytelling segment, that was Emily Knott, reading an excerpt from the Vagina Monologues. Thanks for listening to this evening's Exposure, only on 88.9 The Impact. Exclusive podcast from Impact 89 FM.